This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Jenny. I'm Brian. I'm Trip Kristen. I'm Misa. And we're talking about Herland, a 1915 novel by Charlotte Perkins Gilman that is a lost utopian novel. It, I think it wasn't published between 1915 and 1979, but I will ask Brian. Is that right, Brian? It sounds about right. It was uh, reprinted as part of the big project of recovering um, works by female authors. There, I was assume there was a hard copy uh, made after the magazine publication, but I didn't spot one, you know, handy. But all the copies, if if you look for it online as a paper book, they all come after 1979, and there are a lot of them. Yeah, the introduction to the audiobook actually said that it wasn't for, it wasn't put into book form until 1979. So yeah, I find that just really crazy because it's a pretty good book how did it not get was it suppressed patriarchy (laughs) (laughs) well um i don't know there's uh, there's a there's a lot i I really like the way this story is told it's got a lot of um it's got a lot of action at the beginning and you know, it gets you really thinking, and then when you get into it, uh, it turns into uh, sort of it's almost like a Heinlein book. You know, there's a lot of <laughs> sitting around talking, <laughs> talking about you know the models, and and the characters are kind of like Heinleinian characters, in that they all they know everything, and and they're 100 percent sure about everything. Anybody else get a Heinlein vibe off of this? I, yep. I did feel like it was on a different planet. I had to keep reminding <laughs> myself that it was just some random little jungle village that had been hidden. <laughs> yeah, I'm with Jenny. I completely thought this was almost an alien story. And every time they would be, oh, we're going to go back to to America or whatever. I was very, had to be jarred back into remembering, oh, yeah, they're still on Earth. Yeah, all they have to it do does, is hop on a boat. <laughs> doesn't say what continent they're on. Um, but I'm assuming it's South America just because, uh, Amazon River, I figure. Amazons. But they're not really. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it doesn't, it didn't say Amazon River. It didn't say what, what place it was. It was some sort of jungly area, right? So it's either Africa or, you know, I guess it could be somewhere in Asia, but. Well, didn't it say something about the natives, the native population? Yeah, well, they're they're not Aryans. We know that. No, yeah, the native no, the, population, the not people, Aryans. The jungle people who are talking about this faraway land where only women are, like they seem mm-hmm. like some sort of native. They are definitely some sort of yeah non-native uh, native uh, population. That's, but yeah, it's. I think it's either supposed to be Africa, you know, heart of Africa, or she never specifies and. Probably deliberately so. Okay, but Jen, you read the sequel, right? So does it say in there? (laughs) Well, I was trying to remember because there's actually some people consider this number two in a trilogy, and there's a there's a book number one, and I've been sitting here trying to find it again because in that one 
there was a, a feminist utopia in the United States, but I moving the mountain is that yeah one? moving the mountain. But actually, I don't think they're the same societies. I think they're just no. grouped by scholars as a set. But it's not that the story is the same. Now the sequel actually is the same characters in the same land. Yeah, yeah. with her in our land, I think is called. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read that yesterday. I, I'm, you know, one of the things that I was so interested in when I saw this book um, in the original magazine is that it comes, the first installment, the first chapter comes out in January, last one comes out in December, hmm. uh, and it runs every issue of this self-published magazine that Charlotte Perkins Gilman was writing. And then the very next issue, after the December final episode of Herland, is the first chapter of With Her in Arland. That that makes me think that she was writing it by the month, you know, mm. writing it the month before mm. it was published, because the whole magazine was all her. <laughs> every article in it, every uh, poem, every story, every uh, editorial. Wow. It's like a blog that has tons of content, and it's all from one person. It's, it's, it kind of reminds me of why I wouldn't want to live in that utopia. <laughs> <laughs> Well, she had ideas, that's for she, sure. She did have ideas. Why don't we discuss some of them? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, if, if I could answer your question. Uh, yeah. I, and this is, I guess, the bridge to, to the ideas is um, I read this in the context of the long utopian tradition. And also I was keenly aware of the uh, lost race novels from the period. Mm-hmm. So for me, this really did feel grounded in, in, in that world, in our world to an extent. And, I mean, when you read the utopian novels, one of the things that they always have is this long body of exploring a society and just picking apart all its different mechanisms of how it functions. You know, how does it do religion? How does it do marriage? How does it do private property? And, and that's, I mean, and that's the bulk, that's the center of this, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. if, if it's on a monthly schedule, it's, oh, it's June, it must be agriculture. You know, it's July. <laughs> it, it must be religion, which is which is a nice organizing principle. Uh, there are a lot of novels like this going back to the 1700s and 1800s, and uh, I guess uh, so. I mean, for me, this felt this actually did feel pretty grounded on, on Earth. Um, I do think your comparison of this to Heinlein is is the funniest thing I've heard all day. Well, Especially, you don't think it's, it's true though? Well, no. I mean, my, my first thought is Heinlein as a Terrific sexist. That's why I think it was funny. Um, you know, the high well, he is a terrific them. sexist. Yeah, but I think she is too. <laughs> I think she's a sexist as well. But um, not not you know, Heinlein's sexism is is more, it's it's grounded in his his love of women uh, as a certain kind of thing, and and we kind of see that in the in the like. What's strange is the character, the male point of view character who's telling the story, has a very Heinleinian voice, um, and as do his two companions, and they sort of do the three sort of Heinleinian characters, and then the women, they're like the old man, you know, like mm. in the Heinlein novels, there's always an old man who knows everything and helps the hero understand the world. <laughs> Lazarus, long-winded. Yeah, yes. Um, Sorry, my son, go. Oh, I'm going to say, in, um, I'm not that familiar with a lot of Heinlein, but when you say it, like, it, it didn't remind me of, of Earth. It reminded me of kind of like Heaven, which, of course, it's a utopian novel, so it should remind you of Heaven. But 
But the whole time I was thinking, um, like you have with this whole virgin birth thing. Um, mm-hmm. So if, if, if it's two, if this happened 2000 years ago, it's a pretty, it's a pretty specific timeline, 2000 years ago. Right. So it's like on yeah. the other side of the world or the other side of, say it's Earth, uh, you have the same, it's like the same thing is happening. You have a virgin birth, but this time the baby is female. And so the, so if you, if you keep with this, um, with this metaphor, then this baby is God. Like it's the, you know, like Jesus is God, but this one is reproducing. So that means all is like, so if, if Jesus had reproduced, he would have had God children too. And she, the, so all these babies are like little, little God babies. Well, they that, kind of, that explains they, a lot. Yeah. Well, they kind of said that in the, in the, in the novel itself though. I mean, they said that this woman who had become you know, self-impregnated, I guess, or virgin, virgin impregnation, yeah, yeah. had become an idol for the society. And then that's when their views shifted from the stereotypical, you know, the, the roles we're familiar with to a much more maternal society in general. So I think that's an absolutely apt comparison. Mm-hmm. It's a new um, covenant with, with God where you have a totally new society, a uh, totally new dispensation. Um, and it really, it really runs forward. No, I, I think that's brilliant. I mean, that's the 2000 years really caught my eye. <clears throat> that's an interesting period to go back to. Um, and it's, it's also interesting that if you think about, um, Rome as a slaveholding society, um, in the, I guess we'll get to this. The, um, the foundation of her land is in a slave revolt mm-hmm. and the male mm-hmm. slaves try to kill and rape all the women, but the women fight back and wipe them out. So it's it's kind of like a, you know, there's <clears throat> Christianity spread among um, slaves and lower classes mm-hmm. in Rome. It's almost like a parallel version, an alternate yeah, history. Yeah, that's what I think, too. Um, and, you know, I, I have to say, a much better one in many ways. That reminds me also of the book that Jenny and I were talking about, uh, I guess last week it was, uh, Goslings, in which... There's a line just like that. What a world of slaves it was. And that's after, the, you know, all the men are killed. <laughs> now women have to, you know, take up full responsibility as persons um, and not let the repression that they're doing to themselves and the repression that the men are doing to them. Um, because if there are if there's no masters, then there's no slaves. Everybody it's it's funny i guess they're not masters these women in this world they're mistresses or whatever but they, what they like i find it kind of creepy some of the things that they're doing like the way they talked about their their herds of animals and how yes we eliminated them yeah. <laughs> you know like well i know they're only animals but yeah but wasn't that like a, for space mostly yeah and for for food you know they're not as efficient so they're gone so, well, I guess that is like the Garden of Eden where, you know, you just make everything perfect. All the trees are fruit trees, right? Yeah. Well, and one of the best arguments for vegetarianism because of all the crops that animals huh. eat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. They, do they have any animals for eating? I can't remember. No, they specifically said that they were only eating like the mothers. So I think they said they were eating like the eggs and the nuts and the fruits, but they weren't eating any of the animals. Yeah, there was a, there was a strange line about about uh, like a, a it was I think it was part of the start maybe it was that August or September where they're talking about the 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 literature and the the plays of the women of her land and one of them was about a child talking 
about a nut from a tree. And it was a male nut, and they had to destroy it <laughs> because it might have an infected uh, thing that would cause the trees not to. Or was that the it. bug that was killing yeah, off their a, nuts? Or was that a right. different thing? Because well, I listened to this last it. night and may have been falling asleep during some parts. In no, full that's right. That's, so. that's exact uh, scene. It's the zookeeper. But it, but it was it was like it was only it only affected like the male. Uh, nut or something. I, I don't really understand how nuts work on trees, but um, it was it was just a it, th- there is sort of like a um, mother knows best uh, sort of totalitarianism going on in my mind. It was like these guys, the, the guy who's rebelling, he's rebelling for the wrong reason. The guy who's submitting, I don't think he should submit, you know, to I, I don't, is, is he submitting? I don't know. It, it's it was much more menacing than I think Charlotte Perkins Gilman intended to me, anyways. Well, I it think it was. It seemed to be more of a intentional Darwinism, maybe you know, like yeah. um, we know that this is the weak thing that's going to destroy us, so we're going to go ahead and help nature along and destroy it mm-hmm. faster, so that we can have these efficient crops and you know just cut it out, cut out the negative, cut out the evil. They just did it in everything, not just the people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was definitely an interesting theme of eugenics going along all, all all along. You would think that this society that's technologically advanced enough to know about Darwinism, even though they're isolated, or what's effectively Darwinism, even though they're isolated, but the fact that they applied the eugenics everywhere, they applied it to their plant life, they applied it to their cattle, they applied it then to themselves and said, "You're not allowed to have a child. You're not." You know, that's a that's a crazy society and somewhat of a foresight of what was coming on in the rest of the world, you know, 1917 and then again, World War Two. Yeah. Well, I think she was like, uh, Gilman was, she was a part of that movement. Uh, not at, I don't think that was her main thing, but she was definitely, I mean, that a lot of people were into eugenics at the time. They thought it was a, the new science to come. And, and, you know, we do get horrible, horrible things out of it, but, it was it was all over the world too. I mean, all the you know Canada, the United States, Europe—they're all thinking, "Oh, we got to do this. Let's start sterilizing people." And yeah, it's it's really it's really scary. A lot of it comes from the Midwest of the U.S. Um, and I mentioned this before in this program, but uh, the opening paragraph of *The King in Yellow* begins with this terrifying right. celebration of eugenics. So that's that's from 20 years before that. It's from the uh, 1890s. But it talks about how important it was to just, you know, sterilize the wrong people and fix that. You know, it's it's pretty pretty disturbing. In this it oddly sorry. Um, no, no, go. <laughs> okay. He said that uh, some of the, the more negative um women were sterile anyway. It was like it was like eugenics yeah. yeah. perpetuating itself. Yeah. Uh I think that you know the the if you count up the the hardships given to the women they're only the hardships that help tell the story <laughs> they're they're you know there's no like um and this great woman was unable to conceive yeah, it, right. was, it was terrible right that never happened it was it was you know everybody's happy and the women who don't have who aren't good at raising their child we raise them for them and I said, hmm, yeah, well, I mean, maybe it's all for the good. I'd have to go there and see. But it sounds a lot, I mean, this sounds a lot like what people were saying about, you know, Soviet Russia. 
you know, well, you read in the books, look at all the, look at how great production they are able to do, you know, China. They've got, you know, look at all the pig iron they're putting out. It's amazing. They really got their shit together. And then you go there and you find out the reason that they've got all that pig iron is because they've, you know, they're making everybody make pig iron. And that means all the, you know, kitchen utensils get <laughs> melted down and sent to the, to the, right. the, the it, it, it ends up being, you know, uh, the numbers are artificially inflated because what they're doing is they're just smelting the same iron over and over again. Well, one of the things I liked about this, um, and when I, when I taught it once, one of the things I really enjoyed about it was that instead of having simply the presentation, you know, please come to the people's temple in Guyana. Everything is great. And instead of, right. instead of that, we had these three narratives or these three uh, protagonists who, um, kind of represent a threefold male approach to women. You know, we've got the sexist pig who's called the devil, right? I mean, he's mm-hmm. old Nick, right? In the beginning, um, we have the 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 women worshiper at the other side, and then we have the narrators, you know, put in the middle. So I, I have to ask, given that those three perspectives, what do they do? They reveal three different ways that her land works. Well, it's it's three different ways men approach women, I think. Um, but I don't, I, I, how, let's see. So what happens to the Satan character? He, he's cast out, right? Yep. The the worst thing that they can do to punish him after he tries to rape somebody is to uh, kick him out. And no, they want to kill him. They want to kill him first. Uh, did they? No, they said that if he wasn't going to not talk about Herland, that they would have to basically anesthetize him or kill him. But yeah, they, their first choice was not to kill him. Their first choice was to. Uh, for lack of a better word, deport him. Mm-hmm. Well, the, yeah. this, is, this is the the, the end of the chapter. Uh, our difficulties. Um, Alima was in a cold fury. She wanted him killed. Actually, there was a trial for the local overmother, and this woman saved her case. Blah, blah blah. And then, you know, but that's. I love that. And then the sentence. The overmother. Was, I love that. <laughs> I love that. Was, you must. Everything control. is mothered. Yeah. Well, she she wanted that, um, but. The ultimate judgment was that he he be you know his punishment be he be removed right mm-hmm. it's like every 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 infraction is treated as a temper tantrum hmm. yeah yeah so I I mean I I've, I I guess it's, it'd be a very nice jail cell I mean when they are anesthetized and thrown into into their uh, you know hostelry. It's it's you know it's nice blankets and we're you know the food is good but there's those women outside they'll they'll keep you in it's like you know you've been naughty uh, we're gonna be nice to you but they don't have they didn't have like um, laws or rules really they said they like when they when they talked about punishment within the book they said well do, how do you do you punish people for crimes and they said if 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 someone has a broken leg you mend it like right. So that was their way. Yeah, um, it, it, but it is. It's like treating, you know, if your child is naughty, you don't execute him. Yeah. You, <laughs> you, you know, send him to his room, make him think about what he did, <laughs> and then. Well, not if you're reading and, Leviticus closely, <laughs> which which does recommend execution for certain offenses, like being. Brian, rude. did we did we answer your question? You you were saying something nope. about the three different sides of Herland through the oh, three different men. I'm wondering it, what you guys what you guys think about that. 
Well, do we know the name of the actual narrator? I I want to refer to him as a name. Van Dyke. Oh, right. Okay, Van Dyke. Well, it's a good question because he's the one, you know, he's very much more um, observational. He's a sociologist. He's used to studying cultures. So he's probably the one who's the most interested in learning. And we know how much this society values learning and education. And he gets rewarded in some senses, <laughs> you know. Um, so I guess in that sense, you could follow that idea all the way through. He's the only one who ends up getting married and um, really getting full insight into the world. Just thinking you, that one through. You could also think of them as, as just all aspects of men. Like the, the, the Herland women are like mother basically they're you know you could lump them together and and the same with the, those three men they're like shards of a man you know mhm mhm yeah different shards different i asked once i asked students which one which character you sympathized with and it was mm-hmm. interesting that it kind of split um the majority went for the narrator but you know you did have a substantial minority who sympathized with the other two characters mm which is interesting, and I guess that's... Did you had people sympathizing with Terry? Yeah. 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 Oh, I... It's one of the things I love about teaching. I mean, once, I remember when I was teaching um, the short story, The Yellow Wallpaper, um, we had a revolt in the classroom, or a fight, oh. between... Uh, hmm. uh, there was a group of people, mostly young women, who thought that the doctor husband in that story was doing the right thing. Really? Yeah. Wow. I love <laughs> so... And well, I mean that it, that story—it's pretty clear she's insane by the end of the story, and you know we're only getting it from her point of view. So it's very—I can see why people would be. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know about flipping tables and stuff, but uh, in the classroom, but I, I would definitely be sympathetic with the idea that it—you know—she is more than just you know right. depressed. But let's let's take your point, Jesse. I mean, that you you find this to be immediately dystopian and and terrifying in a lot of ways. Well, it's not completely. I mean, uh, there's obviously lots of great aspects, but it does totally sound to me like um, I, I wouldn't trust you know the, this guy's narrative. I would have to mm-hmm. see some other narratives because it, it sounds you know like he's in love with this this lady, and they, they've formed they've shaped the narrative that you know everywhere they go. I mean, that was one of the creepiest parts of the of the the whole story. Is remember they escape, and there's yeah, we're letting you run, yeah. <laughs> and they finally we're letting you run, and we were watching you, and you know if you had got to you know into any trouble, we would would have solved it. But it was it was like, uh, are they really seeing what's you know? They kept looking for you know the problems of this world, okay. and the, there were not. But doesn't that if if I'm just, I'm not picking on you. Well, I guess I am a little bit, but I'm wondering if doesn't that lean you towards, uh, old Nick's perspective? Because he's the one who's the most critical. I mean, you, yeah. you know, you have the, the, the women lover who's like, oh, this is awesome. Everything about this is great. And turns mm. well, two little girls, you've got your little society, but, you know, once you really understand the power of the masculine dark side, then you'll come to my side and understand. I I I think the, the you know the the when they ta- tried to talk about the plots of of the plays, I was thinking exactly that. I mean, I'm a guy. I love conflict. I think drama is wonderful um, as long as it's not happening in my life. <laughs> I'm good, right? 
when I you know when I talk about Shakespeare, you know Shakespeare knows what he's doing. He he's got you know betrayal and murder and everything. It's all you know and suicide and all the all the fun, interesting drama. Um, you don't have that if you have a perfect society. So when when it comes to talking about what their dramas were about, they it sounded like kind of like a pantomime or something. It, there was no content. It was just like people dancing around on the stage with a procession of clothing. It was like Christmas and, um, um, yeah. pageants. Yeah, and to me that sounds like a horror of <laughs> a horror of, of a lack of. Uh, uh, I mean, it, this book has a terrible plot. If if you think of the content, the beginning's amazing. They're going to go to this land, right? They get there. They have to learn the language. They escape. They are returned. They keep learning the language. They go on lecture tour. <laughs> that's the story. Well, I'm really, the that's 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 a utopian problem, though. A lot of utopian it is. novels have this. I was I haven't read this for a couple of years, but there's a uh, an 18th century um, feminist utopia called. Uh, Millennium Hall, and it has a similar problem that it's mostly a tour of this great feminist utopia, and they and they walk around and check it out and talk about it. So if you want, it's like Heinlein. It's also kind of like Socrates. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this is our place. Well, how wise it is, you know. And and mm-hmm. so there's not. I mean, people have been talking about this now about contemporary today's science fiction and fantasy. Why is it so dystopia driven as well? Utopians are just not really good stories. You know, we, we've solved all the problems. Yeah. Well, where, where do you go? Right. You need problems for stories. Well, well, I was going to ask, go with, you know, Jenny, I know she said that she read the, uh, the sequel to this, uh, with her in Ireland. Did that, did the sequel come up with any of the other, so we say dramatic issues or was it more, more of the same? Because I would think that, you know, you saw one view in this book, and it seemed to be the most balanced case of all the three protagonists. But then mm-hmm. there were flaws with it. But at the same point, you never saw a pro- where they had a problem. Like, what happens when they actually have a conflict within the society? You never saw that happen. Did that ever get explored in the next book? Yeah, it's funny that you should ask, because it's worse than Herland is, as far as plot goes. <laughs> um, and Which is surprising, you know. But basically, um, Elidor brings her rubies with her, which gives her money to travel. And they travel around the world, and she takes notes and speaks to people who speak the language that she speaks um, and gets more and more depressed about the state of the world. And it's basically an opportunity for Gilman to expose more of her ideas, very thinly framed. (laughs) You know, so there really isn't a plot. There aren't any other characters that figure into it. It's just them observing the horrors of humanity, war, poverty, violence. We we get we get that in Herland as well. I mean they they talk, the men are always, you know, ashamed of their society as they compare it to the the land of Herland. Mm-hmm. Um but uh you know, I think I think when I look at history, I look back and I say, God, these people are fucking assholes. Everybody's horrible. Every once in a while there's somebody who isn't completely shit. Um, but at least there's drama. <laughs> you know, you look at it, look back. This is great stories. You know, wow, Julius Caesar's getting betrayed by his best friend. Oh, terrible! Right? It's fun. It's fun to look back at that. But if you're if you're living it, it's horrible. So I, I'd like to live in a utopia, but uh, maybe that's why they didn't want to be immortal. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot going on there. They're living in heaven, right? Right. 
Right. So say more about the immor- say more about the immortality part. Well, because the because the, the men are saying, um, don't you believe in immortality? Don't you want to go to heaven for where where you're you'll be? Uh, I forget what they said. Peace, love, forever. And uh, and they said, well, we're already here. Why would I? Why would I want that? I, you know, my children will live forever, but what? Why would I want what I've already got here? So okay, I've had enough. I'm going. <laughs> wow, wow, a little bit like a Dumbledore in the first book of Harry Potter. Right? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a, that's in um. I mean, thinking about why this book didn't get uh, turned into a printed hardcover. I mean, that chapter that you're quoting from, I wonder if that's not one of the reasons, because, you know, uh, that's the religion chapter. Yeah. And 1915 wasn't a great year to be uh, against uh, American forms of Christianity. Yeah, I think I think Gilman was not a practicing Christian uh, in the normal sense, but um, the, the there's some... Sorry. <laughs> Somebody's leashes are, or uh, maybe toenails need to be trimmed. I'm not sure. Um, speaking of speaking of dogs, they don't keep dogs in her land. No, dogs are male animals. Cats. Yeah, they keep cats. They don't keep dogs, but they also they keep the the cats uh, kind of uh, restricted as well. Now. I, uh, what I think is interesting is in our world, I think we pretty, well, at least my part of the world, we pretty much got the dog problem under control, but the, there was a dog problem at the time in the United States and I guess other parts of the world. You know, dogs were roaming loose, having uh, little puppies everywhere, um, and, you know, that would mean a lot of, you know, wild dogs starving and, you know, uh, making more wild dogs that are starving. We've we've totally got that under control, and that's based on sort of the eugenics model that they were trying to apply to people as well, right? They're, they're seeing success at the time, um, with not with you know just a city dog catcher, but with uh, SPCA's and RSPCA's, uh, you know, societies that are going around making people, uh, you know, have their dogs neutered and spayed, which is which is all about eugenics, really. I mean, that's. That's what eugenics was uh, mostly about. It wasn't about concentration camps and gas chambers for people. It was mostly about, you know, sterilization because we're going to be humane about this uh, destruction of uh, part of the gene pool. So I I see that that society is sort of like a, you know, because of the way they got rid of things. You say, we don't need this. We're getting rid of goats. Goats are gone. We don't need pine trees. We're only going to do fruit trees. And there was, I think there was one, one part about that fruit tree where it said <clears throat> they found a particularly aesthetic looking tree and they made it into a fruit tree. They just cut off all the limbs <laughs> and re- I guess they were putting on, um, grafting on, uh, the limbs of other fruit tree, fruit bearing trees. Yeah. And now not only is it aesthetically pleasing, but also is it productive. Didn't they say that took 900 years or something? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Wow. Makes me like that it it is like a totalitarianistic, um, I mean, I I don't think that she was trying to do it that way, and that's not the objection that men have for it, but that's what gives me sympathy for the, you know, the guy who's who's pushing pushing against the the society and saying there's got to be flaws here. 
he can't find them. Well, let me. If I, if I could, I want to come back to the dogs and cats thing. I, I was surprised. I was rereading parts of this, and I was struck that we get cats and men right away. It's the, one of the first things we see when we follow the men into Herland. This is in the, the second chapter, um, and they're they're moving through the woods, and it's all beautiful, and they're really interested. And then <laughs> Terry's. <laughs> They don't kill birds, and apparently they do kill cats. Must be men here. <laughs> oh, God. What, 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 what a thing to say. I mean, it's like, sorry, I'm, I'm looking at my, this is the Pantheon edition on page 14, but it's like two pages into chapter two. <laughs> wow, what a, I mean, this is Terry, right? So this is, you know, mm-hmm. the old Nick, the devil character. Um, and then we, if you compare that, to the discussion of cats and dogs. And that's, again, I, I'm just wondering if you guys really hit on something here, because that's the chapter, for me, the central chapter of the book, that's the unique history where they describe how Herman came to be. And there's, before we get the story about how Herman came to be, we get this, it's like, what, three pages talking about dogs and cats? And it's this really monstrous discussion, ultimately, where the yeah, we make life really nice for cats, we love them, we treat them well. How about you guys? Oh, we love our dogs, and they they fight all the time, and they hurt children, and they trash the place. And it, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, you see, their country was as neat as a Dutch kitchen. Is the is the hero's or the narrator's observation of this? I mean, I wonder is this is this a nice little um, parable for um, for gender relations? It's a cliche: dogs equal men, you know, cats equal women. Yeah, but yeah. it's. it's it's kind of interesting for her to really pick that as a major anecdote and a major theme. When I was a little boy, I, I thought, because we had, we had dogs and cats. I, I thought that all dogs, dogs were the male of the species and cats were the female of the species because the dogs we had were, were males and the cats we had were females. I just assumed that they were like, men and women or you know they were the same species and when i was disabused of that notion um i was like wow that that changes everything <laughs> because dogs are male right they're they're uh, at least the ones i was out with i mean this this notion of we're going to perfect society we're going to make everything really good we we get that with like Today, when we hear about dogs in the news, it's usually dog mauls child, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and usually it's a pit bull. <laughs> I don't know about right. with you guys, but around here it's a pit bull. Yep. Um, and that means people want to, they want to outlaw pit bulls. You know, the city might get together and they, they have a pass a resolution. Pit bulls not allowed. Um, they might grandfather in the old pit bulls, but they're definitely, they're trying to get rid of pit bull owning people. I don't, I don't think, you know, it's, it's. Uh, I don't know what to think about that, but I I don't like the idea of we're gonna make our society because uh, you know when I open a bag of Lego and it says do not put this on your child's head <laughs> because the child's gonna die from playing with the bag. I know that that somebody might do that. Somebody might have their child die, but I I don't like to, you know my world baby proofed a hundred percent. I think. I think that, that that's what this is looking like. It looks like a baby-proof world. Mm-hmm. And that, I don't know if that's, I, I can't say if that's a male thing, 
that's my perspective because I'm a man, but it's certainly my perspective. It's, I don't. It's my world a baby proof be. world. They said that there were no stairs, there were no sharp corners, there were no. <laughs> <laughs> but but would a woman want to live in a baby proof world? I don't know. Did you? What about? But for for terms of cats, cats are like magical, aren't they? And witches. Do you think that she even noticed that when she made cats hmm. the only? Um, well, That's another thinking, Heinlein thing, right? Heinlein loves his cats. Well, I don't know. I was thinking that, you know, in dogs, it's usually the male that's the alpha. I mean, you don't... In, yep. in packs, it's quite often a male who's the alpha, whereas cats, it is the female that's usually the boss or the queen of the castle, is, or if you have a male and a female together, the, the female who will be the dominant one. So I think she was more going towards that. But, you know, I think we've got some narrator bias, too, in this book, because... You're seeing it from the men's perspective on this 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 uh, female society, but the females aren't letting them see when they have conflict. And they said that they do have conflict and that they look on it almost as, you know, a mental disease which needs rehabilitation, which is a whole other yeah. interesting side topic because, of course, uh, Gilman had mental disease. And you, I think she was uh, putting some of what she thinks people should do about mental disease into this book as well. But, you know, you didn't see what happened when the women had conflict, although they acknowledged they had conflict. And I think if we had been allowed to see that, if the female society had let the men see that, it would be a different book. But because they didn't, now the narrators are biased to say, oh, well, it's perfect. Yeah. Didn't they go to the temple where Mother Superior would uh, state, you know, tell them everything would be okay? <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. The overmother. Over yeah, you had those religious leaders that would... They were wiser than you, so you would go to them to talk about your problems and stuff. Remember that. So, part. it's not quite 1984, but maybe Big Sister would be the sequel to Herland that mm-hmm. someone else would write, you know, because it is. It, 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 it's it, there's there's something that I know. It's like when I read um, the Insidious Doctor Fu Manchu. I was I was rooting for Fu Manchu. <laughs> I know I'm supposed to hate Fu Manchu, but because. He, He's not the racist. He's just trying to. He's just trying to make things even. He's trying to make the world better. He he's, he's <laughs> smart. Um, <laughs> the, the evil racist, um, you know, imperialist pig dogs that are the the protagonists that are trying to solve the world, uh, uh, rid the world of Fu Manchu. Uh, I mean, that's not what the writer intended, but that's what that's what I ended up doing. I was rooting for Fu Manchu. I was like, "Come on, Fu, you can do it." <laughs> In this one. I wanted a guy in there saying, "Look, you know, you're, you've got these problems with your drama. You're you're baby-proofing the world. Men like uh, challenges, and you know, every time there was a, a possibility of sort of saying, look, we are deficient.' And and I think she really undercuts herself because she, at the end we get the idea that these uh, these three women marry these three men, and what happens is." Um, we get the sense that they're going to be integrated. The, the, the women of Herland are going to be integrated back into society. And I mean, I think that that the whole book is like a piece of propaganda uh, for feminism. It's saying, look, women are valuable and equal, just like in Gosling's, um, the J.D. Beresford book we did last week. Just like in Gosling's, there's women are being underutilized for their potential and it hurts women it hurts men it hurts society and in this book it's like here's a world that shows what women could do and 
at the end, when they're saying we're going to be reintegrated, we get this idea that their their infection of you know goodness is going to help us in our world. By reading this book, we're going to come out of it and say, yeah, you know what? Women aren't um, just to be put on pedestals, like that one guy says, and they aren't uh, to be conquered, and they aren't you know they're they're supposed to, they're more like what Van Dyke thinks, right? Is that they're or comes to the conclusion is that women are uh, partners and equally valuable, and um, and there's something good about a good relationship. But because there's no conflict, um, it it feels like like uh, that's that that's the Heinlein part, right? Is that he he shallowly makes his he he, he doesn't offer any doubt. Everything's 100%. Right. This is 100% right. Right. Well, and um, an interesting part of Herland is that the overmother seems interested in reestablishing what sh- she calls a bisexual state mm-hmm. about reintegrating men. And so I guess I kind of wonder if the society is so perfect and they've taken such great pains to cut out this force, what exactly is it that they think they're going to gain? You know, what are what are they going to try to do with these men in their society? I, I was wondering that too. Like the whole the whole land was watching this this new pregnancy, you know, with faded breath. Mm-hmm. If if they were if they were paying so much attention to what these men said and 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 re, and thought that it that their world was was so terrible, why do they want to reintegrate? What was going on there? Well, biologically, it makes sense. I mean. And, this this novel science is pretty bad in the sense that you know if everybody's clones of of five clones um your population's not going to be super healthy the problem with clones always will be that they're too easily infected and that's why asexual reproduction is not as you know safe for a species as sexual reproduction the the reason that all these you know animals that can do parthenogenesis don't do it all the time is because they can't bury their genes enough to make it super survivable, survivable in the long term. So for scientific reasons, I don't think that that's that explanation works because they've been doing it for 2000 years. Right. So there's some sort of problem there. And when, when they do get married and uh, Van, 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 I guess is his name um, is saying, you know, it's time to go to bed, dear. We've just had our wedding. Um, His wife is like, I'm not ready. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. And he says, but I, I just want to kiss you here and then I want to go over there. And then, you know, it's like, um, he, and he has to learn to be cool with that. And I, I, maybe she's dealing with, um, the idea that, uh, you know, women who are married don't have to have sex with their husbands whenever the husband wants. Maybe that's what's being dealt with there. But, um, <laughs> what did she, uh, why does she want to get married? Well, I guess to answer the to answer the, the question, um, this is the I'm looking at chapter eight, the girls of Herland, and it's interesting that they have two different motivations for this. Um, the chapter begins with them lecturing the girls, and they talk about knowledge. So this is one thing. Um, where'd it go? We know nothing but such science as we've worked out for ourselves, just the brainwork of one small half-country. And you, 
have helped one another all over the globe, sharing your discoveries, pulling your progress. How wonderful, how supremely beautiful your civilization must be. So they really want to, they want to learn. And when the, and when the plane flies overhead, the, uh, their rapid determination is from another country, probably men, evidently highly civilized, doubtless possessed of much valuable knowledge. Uh, so, okay, that's, that's one reason, the whole ad knowledge. But then there's this great phrase, let me see if I get it. I'm working through two different copies here. Um, about, um, uh, their identity, that they want to make them more distinct. Do you guys remember this? Um, let me see if I got the right passage. But they want, they want to emphasize their distinctive identity um, by gender. That uh, makes me think of, um, while you're looking that up, it makes me think of Van Dyke is a kind of beard. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the women need a beard That's right. because basically they're all lesbians, right? I mean, the thing is that there's actually no sex in this world, which is, I think, I, I, another thing I don't buy. Maybe that's the Edwardian era. Um, you know, you put a whole bunch of women into prison, they're going to have sex with each other. Not all of them necessarily, but they're going to do their best, right? They're going to masturbate. They're going to do... You know, they're going to sneak in with the, the male prison guards. A lot of people are, you know, highly sex, sexually driven. Um, so for all this human history, not not only, uh, not human history, all this Herland history, they, they've, they haven't been having sex for 2,000 years. Well, Jesse, that's even more illuminated in the sequel. Oh, really? She's... She's traveling around the world, getting more and more frustrated because not only are women suppressed everywhere, she can't have a conversation with one because they don't think, you know, they don't, they aren't critical thinkers, you know. And there's this quote I have in my review of the sequel. When your women are really awake and know what they are for, seeing men as the noblest kind of assistance, nature's latest and highest device for the improvement of parentage, they will talk less of sex and more of children. Because remember, the whole point of the society is about the children, the child raising, the cult of motherhood. You know, it's right. There's not, there's no need for sex. What's the point? They don't, they don't seem to need it. And it's very clear that Elidor and Van Dyke are not having sex. Yeah, not to Van Dyke's pleasure, though, right? He gets used to it. He he learns. (laughs) He loves her despite the fact that he can't love her. Do we even know know if if uh, Celeste, if if that relationship, if that baby that's coming is from a union? Because they never specifically say one way or the other. She could have just been pregnant. It's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's um. We read Frankenstein together a few weeks ago, and this reminds me, this is kind of a doppelganger to Frankenstein, where you've got Victor Frankenstein making a male monster. So he's basically cut women completely out of society. Mm. You know, we get male-only reproducing society, and again, without sex. Right. right. Um, not to, to, I found the passage I was, I was looking for. This is, uh, uh, again, Girls of Herland. Uh, who says this? Samel says, we can see that we do not seem like women to you. Of course, in a bisexual race, the distinctive feature of each sex must be intensified. But surely there are characteristics enough which belong to people, aren't there? That's what I mean about you being more like us, more like people. We feel at ease with you. So there's that the distinctive feature of each sex must be 
must be intensified. Maybe that's a reason to include men to um, sharpen and delineate the character of the women in Herland. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good one idea. of the one one of the mentions about you know what characteristics they have. I mean, they they, they wear long pants. They've got short hair, right? Their their hair's not all the same style, but it's basically all the same. It's it's functional hair, right? It's not like decorative hair. It's not like, you know, decorative fingernails versus functional fingernails sort of thing. But one of the things that mentioned is they naturally don't have any um um hair on their upper lips. Yeah. It's just <laughs> totally natural. Now, um what is she what is she doing? What is what is is I don't understand, like, is this, like, her fantasy land that she's playing with at some times, and then other times it's, like, um, because, <laughs> why did she, what is she, what is she trying to do? Is this her fantasy, like, like, her fan fiction for her own world that she's making? I'm talking Gilman. Like, I don't understand why she would add a detail like that, unless it was, like, to, at one point, you know, they're, they're, these aren't real women. They don't look like women at all. But then, you know, the other characters, no, they're totally like women. They're just, they're just competent and they know stuff. It's the, the value of ability and intelligence over the value of looks. Seems. But they, but they, they were all handsome from good Aryan stock, we're told. Oh. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that must be the other side of it. <laughs> Did you guys ever read that uh, graphic novel? Um, a medieval dystopia or a medieval utopia about bearded women called uh, Castle Waiting. No. No. Yeah, it's really cute. No. Yeah, it's called uh, Linda Medley is the author. Uh, and it's really a lot of fun. About, uh, uh, when it takes place on the like, 13th century or so. And uh, it's about, uh, well, I don't want to totally spoil it, but it's about women who have facial hair and they get... Uh, they more or less get to set up a uh, community for themselves. That's neat. Hmm. Well, speaking of graphic novels, um, one that I have read that is not completely unrelated to this, or Gosling's actually, is um, uh, Why the Last Man. This hmm. is a, a novel by, or not novel, graphic novel, series, comics, by Brian K. Vaughn is the writer. Yeah. Um, he's yes. doing something called Saga now, which I'm not enamored with, but I, I quite liked... Um, why the last man and basically the premise is all of a sudden all the men die um except for one and he is you know stuck in this world where women are doing everything the difference is the women are from our time or at least you know the late 1990s early 2000s they're modern women so they're cops and they're lawyers and they're judges and they're pilots and they're everything right but there's tons of conflict (laughs) Because when you make women uh, equal to men, they're, they'll get into conflict. It's not uh, like I think a lot of people still hold this. Uh, maybe not us, but a lot of people in this world still think that if we just had women running the government, everything would be fine. Right? <laughs> we'd, we'd be all taken care of. They've been reading Herland or something. You know, women don't start wars. And, you know, I don't think that that's true. I think that women are because they're people. Um, they will start wars and they will be totally into conflict. And it's not like that women are bitchier than men and that they'll start more wars. It's just they're people and people will start wars and, and they'll get into conflicts and, and cause, I mean, 
you you hear women politicians saying stupid things. You hear men politicians saying stupid things. It's not because they're men or women. I think it's because they're people. But that's the opposite of Gilman, who who's it is. You know that. Um, and and the one argument is, you know, you get women politicians acting, you know, starting wars. You know, think of Thatcher, for example, or, or um, and and that's because uh, they're still immersed in a patriarchal society. That's that's what Gilman would argue, right? I guess. And Jenny, would that would that be what she would say in the third book? Well, it, she kind of contradicts herself a little bit because in the third book, she really tries to make an argument for why democracy should have been awesome <laughs> if we had done it right. Um, but the fact that you continue to suppress people like women or people who have been brought into the country, like she talks a lot about slavery and different ethnicities and immigrants, um, that while you keep suppressing people, those people will continue to rise up and and um, perpetuate the violence. So I guess I'm not really convinced that that's an argument um, for men versus women as much as situation, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, writing this in 1915, that's quite a terrible moment. Yeah. Oh, it's right. I mean, it's, it's a year into, um, what does Barbara Tuckman call it? The Fallen Tower? You know, where you have, you know, this civilization that thinks it's achieved the acme of human possibility and now it's killing itself in the mud of the trenches. Mm-hmm. And it gets worse, too. Um, you know, after, Jenny, after that last issue of uh, The Forerunner, which serialized the second book um, uh, with her in Arland, that was the last issue of her magazine. Mm-hmm. I think she she might have written herself out. You know, she just, like... She she wrote a magazine from 1909 to 1960, monthly magazine. Every issue was her. I just can't believe somebody could write, you know, like it full, almost, you know, it's not 100 pages, but it's a big magazine. Every page has her writing on it, serializing everything. She's she's writing to exhaustion is what I would we got to lock her up in a yellow wallpapered room or something after that. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> Oh. Because, I mean, it, that is crazy, right? That is... Well, she was crazy, so, you know. Yeah. Well, and the problem is, she has these severe critiques of society, but she doesn't ever actually make any practical suggestions of how to make that transition from where we are to where she thinks we should be. It's, this is a big problem with utopia yeah. in general. This <laughs> is just... We look at one and we say, how do we get from here to there? I don't know, but I like living here. <laughs> In a very vague way, education is clearly one of those things, and equality. Um, those seem to be hand in hand, but you know, there's not a lot of practical advice embedded within that, I don't think. You know what? Uh, my my answer to this, you know, how do we get from here to there, is by reading utopian novels. <laughs> it's actually because what happens is you see it and you say, well, look, 1984, bad idea. Um, if we've got a problem uh, with people spying on us, hand out more copies of 1984. Um, get because I, I, I mean, that's where eugenics comes from, right? Is from people reading books. The problem is, is um, no, they don't. No, no, not completely. It, 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 <laughs> it came out of uh, the origin of species indirectly, yeah, right? And not directly. But don't forget that in in Darwin's time and in Gilman's time, the majority of humans lived in agricultural societies, which practiced eugenics. Yeah. Well, plants. yes. I mean, that's that's always the, uh, the the fallacy of the "don't play God" argument. Is we always play God, 
you know. Yeah, of course. We've been doing. Um, no, I'm, I, I, I guess. Think, I, oh, go ahead, please. Oh, I, I was going to say, I think part of the how do we get from here to there was was uh, was supposed to be the education. Like when she said, um, they, they, there was no such thing as a classroom or anything. It was all everybody learned everything, and um, it was all through games and and no. But like if you look at like um, Finland, the way they do education, apparently it, they no testing, no competition. It's all about it's all about learning without without putting like strictures on it, where you have to. Where you have to have an end result in or so you're not you're not striving for the end result, you're just learning. I think that was kind of um an implied way of, of how you get there. I, I I want I want that to be happening. I want to go to Finland and make sure it is actually happening because <laughs> well, but I mean that's what that's how they you know, that's what you read about it. Yeah. But then um, you have to answer there was, you have to ask sorry. like what what is being taught. It's not just the method. And I agree the method of education is different, but what what you choose to teach, what you form your society around, it's clear that in her land, they're constantly developing new methods of agriculture, um, construction, art even. Yeah. And so yeah. They're, they're definitely learning more and advancing their society somehow. But they're not, but, but they're not in certain other ways. I mean, I, don't, yeah. I would argue about construction. I mean... They said at one point that their medicine had gotten so far that they could figure out they knew how to take care of themselves and maintain their own healthy bodies, but after that it had dropped off. So at some That's point true. they're they're selectively educating and yeah, they, you can't they just only, say it's it was, it's pure education at that right. point. And within, that's within actually the, a, a dystopian part is that they've forgotten so many things that if they were reintroduced to the to the rest of society, I think they would have major issues because they wouldn't have had to deal with it. Uh, and, and along that same line of education is also, I mean, I don't think education is, is like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take all this information and shove it into you. What I think education is, is, is an exploration by a, uh, uh, babies are scientists. They grow up asking questions. Why is this doing that? Right. And uh, as, as we, uh, hear them asking the questions, we try and answer them as best we can. When we can't, we say Santa Claus and we say, um, God, right? we say a bunch of things that don't answer that. Those, those, if they don't answer them, then they keep asking those questions. But if you've got a, a, a training system that makes everything, you know, like it was kind of creepy that they make, you know, walking on a straight line, a game of learning. I think if you know what you're going to teach everything to a kid before, you know, this is what you're going to learn and this is exactly how it will be. You're not going to get new ideas. You're not going to get a um, good, ed a well-educated person. You have to let them learn s some stuff and teach you some stuff because it isn't a hundred percent one-way um, structure of a teacher embodying everything to a student. Right, and, and perfect. they have this sorry smothering sort of um, attitude towards everything. Right. We know best. Right. Everything. Scary. And perhaps that's why they're open to introducing a new element into their society. Maybe reading between the lines, this utopia has stagnated, you know, and maybe they need something to kind of spur an advance in their society. Now, personally, if I lived in a society where 
my greatest contribution would be to have babies all the time, um, I would be bored to tears. So, so this seems would you be bored to tears now? Would you be bored to tears if you were in an isolated society that really hadn't had a, I mean, you know, like other, other animals in nature, they live to reproduce, right? And they live to, 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 to pass on the line. And but they it's easy in our 2013, you know, <laughs> eyes as, as a female engineer working in a male dominated, you know, industry or whatever. Yeah, of course I'm like, oh, I want girl power or whatever. But at the same point, <laughs> if, if I was in this isolated little society that had never been exposed to all that, would I, would I need to do anything other than procreate and teach what is, what I've learned to, you know, to live a good life? Well, I guess I just wonder because. I, even for Charlotte Perkins Gilman, I, I kind of felt like, is this really the best she could imagine for women? Like, the, the one role that they were given in 1915 on a pretty consistent way would continue to be their major role? I mean, I don't know. Doesn't it wasn't a major role. I mean, there, there, there are lots of, like in the book, it's very clear that women who don't want to be super involved, ba- you know, not babysitting, I don't know, mothering every minute. They're not, they're not doing that. But what they will do in is the society. That, that's right. The the acme, as we were saying earlier, of the society is to be a mother. Right now, I can get behind a society where you have the children and someone else takes care of them. You know, it takes a village, Hillary Clinton, etc. But for that to be like almost penalized, like okay, I want to focus on my arborist duties, my tree right. development, you know, but that puts me at a lesser status than the people who are educating the children. I'm like, that's when I kind of get into a a conflict there. <laughs> Back in Gosling's, um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting about that book was that it was about fashion. And fashion and women go together, I think, uh, really well. I know that men are subject to fashion and if you, you know, look at paintings of of uh, Europeans in the 16th century, you know, they've got these big ruffs. <laughs> well, I was trying to understand what ruffs were for. As far as I can tell, they were for decoration only. There was no reason for it other than it was fashionable. Um, but if in this book, right at the beginning, how do they know that the society of women is real? They go to the bottom of this waterfall and they talk to the natives and the natives say, oh, yeah, sometimes the river runs green. Sometimes it runs red. And they find little scraps of cloth right. uh, that are the leftovers of the dyeing, dye making process that's happening up up the river. But the rivers in China turn blue and that doesn't point <laughs> to a matriarchal society. No, no, no. It was, it was dyed cloth. <laughs> <laughs> Did you find it weird that those that those savages or the natives had said, "Yes, there's a there's a, a, a land of women. It's dangerous and deadly for men, and and men never come back." Um, yeah, black widows is what I was. Thinking. Yeah, but then when she when they get to when they get to her land, these women they say, "We haven't seen a man in two thousand years." So yeah, I don't believe them. What, what was that? I don't believe them. I think we're getting, I think it's a dystopia where we're, we're, it's a utopia dystopia where we're only getting the women's, you know, nice face on it. And, and I, I don't know if, if Gilman believed that, but I believe that about her society because it, 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 it's perfection is frightening. 
to me. Well, I like the education system actually, and it and it does it does connect with uh, Finland. Uh, mm-hmm. It differs from the U.S., where they mention that. I guess Jenny, this is a maybe a compliment to your point about uh, child rearing being the highest good. They say, "What's the line about only our best become teachers?" Which is the Finnish model, right? Where where you know you have to have an advanced degree, highly competitive to become a teacher, which is the opposite of the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they have uh, the description sounds like uh, Montessori. I mean, it sounds beautiful. Yeah, that, there's a mentioned name drop of Montessori in here. Oh, right, right, right. I mean, so, you know, like it's all the education is all blended into uh, everyday life. Uh, you know, dance, music, religion, education, all close together. And the, that story about Elidor becoming a forester, you know, she finds a butterfly and it interests her and she just follows that passion. And then that passion is celebrated. Everyone congratulated me. The children all over the country were told to watch for that moth to see if there are any more. I mean, it's, it's the, it's complete opposite, not just of no child left behind, but if you think about education 1915, the real factory school system, it's the exact opposite. Um, and it's just we still have that legacy of of those that kind of schools. We're still working the factory system. We do, and if, we are. if you want to see it, you want to see it even worse. Go to China, where they've been practicing it for almost two thousand years. Oh, I know, I know. And in fact, um, you know, that's oh, this is a whole topic to, to talk about. Um, but I think you know, um, this is uh, this is a very positive aspect. And I wonder, you know, is this? I mean, calling for education reform. No, that's a. We've been doing that ever since we've been educating. Um, hmm. Maybe to answer, I forget who asked this. Uh, Maisa, I think you asked about. You know, how do we make this happen? What's the practical suggestion? Maybe uh, this is a practical suggestion is to reboot yeah, the education that's system. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, change schools. <laughs> <laughs> and we think that now. I mean, that's actually. I don't know, Jesse, if you're hearing any of this from the U.S., this is this is a really fierce argument where there's a lot of talk about reforming K-12, through 12, and in, in a sense, if I can be crude about it, the debate is one side saying, well, society is having problems, let's fix K-12 through 12 so we can improve society. And the other side is saying, no, K-12 through 12 looks like it's having problems because society is messed up, we need to fix society, specifically poverty and regional imbalances and wealth. Um, but here, you know, this is a pretty classic position for Gilman to say, I'm putting words in your mouth. I mean, I'm saying this, this sounds like a more practical thing to do than to say, kill all the men. <laughs> you know, to follow up this idea, because this becomes even more important in the sequel, and I hope you guys don't mind that I keep bringing it up. No, please, please. Um, please. I'm not going to read it. But she points out that in our society, America in particular, um, we tend to weed out strong women because we don't, people don't marry them. <laughs> you know, hmm. someone's very opinionated, very strong. They are less um, uh, sought after. And so they get suppressed just by default, especially in 1915. You know, let's be fair. It's probably less true now. Um, and so there's this idea that these new ideas in her land would be valued they'd be followed through, they'd be embraced and everyone would get excited about them and follow the idea through to its conclusion. And in our society, new ideas are scary. They disrupt the norm and so we suppress them. And that is the root of the problem is the value of critical thinking and ideas. And so she just, she really fleshes it out in the sequel, I thought, in a, in a really good way. 
that that's also in in this book too in the, in the way that they talk about um laws laws so they so they say that in in this our land here laws are thousands of years old and they've been handed down from generation to generation and in her land there's no laws over 100 years old and most are under 20 so they're they're continually revo- they're not stuck in something cuz somebody said it 2000 years ago so they're not mm-hmm. holding on to that they're they're only looking forward and if it doesn't work anymore they they dump it i think right. that so adds to the how do you get there kind of they have that same critique of religion in her land why has man kept all its earliest religious ideas when all the other ideas like science have been updated they they're like i don't understand that why do you have the same religion <laughs> good point yeah a lot of a lot of what's going on in this book is is a critique of 1915 you know you know us society world society at, at that time and so all, i think at the time it would have been a lot more powerful um if if you were willing to accept it if you would happen to be one of the persons who had subscribed to her magazine um, which I think is almost nobody. Right? Say, how many so, subscribers did that magazine have over the time? And, we don't, I don't know if we have those numbers. Um, it's not listed on Wikipedia, but it, it's got to have been more than zero and less than you know millions because um, if I I was I was starting to think Elador was uh, was the way that people the the name Elador is a name of a, of a fantasy book, but it's a different spelling. <laughs> There's no, this book has not had any impact, I think, between 1915 and 1979. And why is that? Why would nobody publish it? Why wouldn't nobody have found it and say, hey, why don't we do this up? Is it because of the male oppressive society? She, she's running her own magazine because no one else will publish her, her, her stuff? Yes. I think yeah. that's why. So she was probably only read by the people who she was – she's preaching to the choir. Yeah, you know. I don't know. I guess I'm surprised. It was a little bit. Sorry. I guess I'm surprised that, particularly in the time of you know Rosie the Riveter, when women were taking a greater role, that it wouldn't have come up, you know, then like World War II time frame. But well, there was a certainly, uh, certainly in the late shortage. '70s, it made more sense. There's a quote-unquote paper shortage, which means um, only the magazines that are producing propaganda get produced. There was. Um, there was also this. Uh, this actually ties into Lovecraft in a weird way. There was um, a, a Department of Defense initiative <clears throat> to get books to soldiers in trenches, mm-hmm. and they um, they basically asked publishers to give them the copyright for certain books, and, right. and they published it. The books are a weird format. They're like three inches tall and seven inches wide. Um, I used to have a, and so um, Arkham House gave them a, a collection of Lovecraft. And, mm-hmm. and, they, and imagine reading that in the trenches of it. I know. I'm thinking it's either the best or the worst thing to read, right? <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of those, a lot of those guys in the late 40s came back and were like, I want more of this, and it helped lead to a Lovecraft. But, but I, um, I, I guess you know, at the same time as <laughs> you also have a hyper masculine society of uh, war, um, and you know that leads into the post World War II hyper masculine, hyper-sexist society that we now see in, say, Mad Men. Mm. I, 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 also, I think each of these chapters is so offensive to America at the time. 
um, you know, every step of the way, you know, your food is bad, America, your, <laughs> your religion is dumb, your gender relations suck. I mean, it's just, you know, your obsession with war is childlike and stupid. Even your pets are wrong. I mean, yeah. this, this is punk rock. I mean, I, I'm... I, I can't see a publisher touching this in the 30s or the 50s. Um, well, did, did you notice that they, they had a discussion about patriotism in there? Yeah. And, yeah, and so they said patriotism leads to, like, I don't remember, what said, but hate, death, starvation, um, and, and patriotism means, you know, fatherhood, doesn't it, essentially, of one's yeah. father? And yeah. so, so they were compa- So maybe that's why it was because if, if, if they're talking about patriotism at a time when when wars were coming up and like you patriotism was a big thing, maybe that's why it was so unpopular, not popular. That definitely. Yeah, well, I, I'm I'm with her on patriotism. I think I think it's. I, I think I live in a wonderful country, but I don't necessarily think it's the best country. Um, the a lot of people talk about American exceptionalism and and you know what, what where that term comes from and what it means and all that stuff. But um, you know, un unthinking love of whatever your government's doing is that's that's nightmare. Not that's you know that is the most dangerous thing you can do well, because she was saying. Yeah, she's right. Well, in 1914, 1915, the world went through this fervor of patriotism. In effect, this mm-hmm. is, I mean, as someone on the left, I mean, I find this kind of embarrassing that you have a lot of people on the left in Europe and America who were very anti-war, very anti-capital, very anti-government, who suddenly support the war. They get caught up in, in a fervor of patriotism. This happens to American socialists. It happens to a lot of European socialists. And it's really, even uh, one of my heroes, the great anarchist Kropotkin, has this awkward argument where he says, you need to support the allies in World War I because France is one of the allies, and France is the best chance for a revolution for what we want. Like, yeah. Oh, God, it's, it's, it's horrible. And, and, and so, you know, you think that passage that you just quoted um, it's look at the font and the typography. Lots of capital letters, lots of italics. It's really passionate. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the end of chapter eight, I think. In wor- World War One, uh, the the hero, the winners are the bad guys. I mean, nobody's good in that war. But why did Britain? Why did Britain join that war? Why did Canada join that war? Why did the United States join that war? What was the idea? Yeah. No good explanation can be found if you're looking uh, for, you know, justification now. It's all crazy. You know, I used to teach a literature of war class, and uh, I would love to include this in the World War I section. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's, a, it's a nice example. Um, oh, even uh, Willa Cather has this unbelievable, heartbreaking novel it's, as far as I can tell, the only pro-World War I novel written after World War I. Wow. Um, it's about a guy from the prairies who, who goes and becomes a soldier. And at the end of the book, she says, the only bad thing about this war was the peace treaty wasn't really good enough. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> you think, oh, jeez. Oh. No, I, I mean, in many ways, it feels like she's saying it wasn't harsh enough. Um, <laughs> you know, um, no, I, I think this patriotism... I think you nailed it. This is this is definitely uh, one of the reasons why this book would be just so offensive. Mm. 
Well, I, I think we had a good talk. Anybody uh, got any last words for this book? I really want to read the prequel and the sequel. Moving the Mountain came out in 1911, and With Her in Our Land came out the very next month in The Forerunner. Uh, with Her in Our Land. Is the prequel actually out in a book form? I mean, I know the, the sequel is, but is the prequel there also? Is an, there's an ebook that has the three. That's the only place I could find it. I couldn't even find the sequel as like a public domain text, which it should be, but it, it's not up anywhere. It is, it is public domain. Well, it is, it, but you can't the find magazine, it. <laughs> Yeah, there, there's a, I'll try and link to the, um, the Forerunner. You can actually look at issues. Um, somebody scanned them and put them up online. And, I'd love to see that. Yeah, I, I was, I was looking at it. I was hoping there would be illustrations. I'm a big fan of illustrations. There is no illustration in it after the first, uh, first issue that changes, um, for any of the magazines, but it is just Full of this lady, I I gotta tell you, I was reading, flipping through it. She was, I would not want her to be my mom because she was like intense. <laughs> she has a she has a poem, I think, in the December issue, the same issue that the, has the last chapter of of um, Herland in it uh, of 1915, December 1915, and it's about Santa Claus. And it was about how children should not be taught about Santa Claus because I'm evil. It's like Santa Claus is like telling his stories like I'm a big lie. So what they need is like they need oh. Krampus. That's what they need. All children need Krampus. <laughs> this has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. 